Welcome to New Freedom Church. Over the next hour, we will worship together through song and hearing a message that is designed to help you grow in your faith. So please take a minute and fill out that Connect form online so that we will send you a free t-shirt just like this. It is the most comfortable t-shirt you will ever wear. We want to thank each of you who have shared our videos on Facebook, YouTube, and other social media forms because that really helps us to get more of the message out to many, many people that can benefit from the same content that you get today for absolutely free. Let's get started. My name is Joe Schutz. I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here at New Freedom. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, I would love to do that. If you're joining us online, you can click on the Connect card there digitally and let us know that you're joining us today. Welcome back for part number two of a series in the book of James, Wisdom for Living. The book of James is uh, really, we would call it a letter. It's just a small little five-chapter letter that was written as an epistle to the early church. Uh, It is to the New Testament what the book of Proverbs is to the Old Testament. It is a book of wisdom. Everybody say wisdom. Wisdom. Now, I'm an audience participation preacher, so you need to pace with me here. Everybody say wisdom. Wisdom. How many want the wisdom of God in your life? I mean, I I just pray for God's wisdom. We looked at last week, and if you missed that, you can go back online. You can go to our website or our uh, social media, and you can pick that up and watch it. But we talked last week how that if anyone lacks wisdom, all they have to do is ask of God, and he gives it liberally and without reproach. He doesn't withhold wisdom when we ask, and that is certainly what we need for our day and age right now, what we're experiencing in our own personal lives, what we're experiencing as a nation and as a world. We need the wisdom of God. James, the book of James. This book to me is, is one of my favorites of the, the entire New Testament, and, and partly because of the author of the book. This book was written by the younger brother of Jesus. Now, if you can imagine some, some sibling rivalries, I have a younger brother, uh, I have uh, a couple younger brothers, I have a, an older sister, you know, there, there's some sibling rivalries that can happen in a household, but how about coming up in school and the teacher had Jesus before they had you, James? And the teacher is expectantly waiting for James to come in. I mean, James is going to be just like Jesus, right? Like the teacher looks at James the first day and says, I've got big plans for you. (laughs) But your brother was perfect. So like, how can you ever live up to that? This is the writer of the book we're about to talk about. And it's interesting to me that James didn't even become a believer in Jesus until after the resurrection. I mean, how could you truly walking through life, living in the same room with Jesus sharing a bed with you and peeing all over you? I'm sorry, but that's what I did to my brother when I was, you know, that's just what brothers do. Like, how could you really believe that he was the son of God? And so James didn't start to become a believer in Christ until after the resurrection. And that, that to me speaks so much of what he has to share with us because he's not simply some religious mystic that just accepts everything at face value and doesn't think it through. But James is a logical conclusion thinker. You don't have to check your brain at the door in order to come to faith in Jesus. Can I get an amen? You can simply look at the facts, look at the evidence, and you can make a decision for yourself. And that's what each and every one of us are called to do when it comes to the claims of Christ. And we're going to give you that opportunity before this service is over. But the book of James written by the brother of Jesus. Uh, last week, I shared with you how that uh, he, he launches into this, this uh, request for wisdom. And today, we're going to look at faith without works being Dead, And this is an initial warning against showing favoritism as a Christian. Let's, let's just read it, verses uh, 1 through 9 first. It says, my brothers and sisters, so he's addressing this to those who already have accepted faith in Christ. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man as filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich, is not the, the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Think about it. Who do you belong to? Whose name and title do you bear? If you are a Christian, then you are a Christ-like one. And James is making an appeal to us to remember the one to whom we belong. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and here it is, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Showing favoritism. Now, I like this, this portion of scripture here because it has everything to do with how that we relate to the world around us. Relation to the world around us is vitally important as a believer. This is actually the second core value of New Freedom Church. Relationships is so key in how that we live our Christian life. And, and we break it down at New Freedom like this in three ways. We relate to God through our worship. And I certainly hope that your worship is more than what you just take place on Sunday morning for an hour in this room. I hope that you realize that your worship to God, that that your reasonable service to God does not play out just in these four walls, but your worship to the Lord is Monday through Saturday when you're going to work, when you're in the marketplace, when you're on the job, when you're in your family meetings, when, when you have an opportunity to worship God in your car, when you're listening to music that uplifts you, when you are speaking things that glorify God. This is all a worship unto the Lord. And we relate to God through our worship. We relate or have a relationship with each other through our fellowship. And this is why it's vitally important. Hear me. It is vitally important that you not just gather in a large setting like this or just simply watch us online. I love the online. I love the large settings. But God also calls us to a family to relate with one another in groups of about six to 15 where we can really do life together. It's an oikos, you see. It's eight to 15 people who we are influencing in a realm and in a circle of being able to share our burdens with them and they share their burdens with us. As iron sharpens iron, so the countenance of one person sharpens another. We relate to each other through our fellowship. And yes, for us believers, that usually means food. Can I get an amen? Fellowship means breaking of bread and food. And so you need to be relating in smaller groups too. And lastly, at New Freedom, here's what we believe about relationships. You and I relate to not yet believers through our testimony, through our witness. And I say not yet believers because I truly am convicted and I truly believe that God is working on the hearts and lives of people all around us. Even those who have the most tough exterior and the countenance and they they say that they don't want anything to do with God, God is knocking on the door of their heart. And we relate to the not yet believers through our witness and through our testimony. What is our life speaking? Are we showing partiality and favoritism as we look at people from the outside? Or are we showing the true nature of God that we look somewhere else, that we look deeper? I think of uh, 
David, King David. Everybody know King David. You've heard of David and all the Psalms that he wrote. David was the one that slew Goliath. We, we know the mighty songs about David, but did you know that in his early years that David was not very favored by his father? David didn't have the exterior that his other brothers had. And when the Lord got ready to call David as king, we see this story played out that the prophet Samuel was called to go to Jesse's house. This is David's dad. And he comes to, to Jesse's house kind of unexpected. And Jesse's like, what are you doing here, prophet? And, and Samuel says, well, God has called me to anoint one of your sons as king. And Jesse, no doubt, was elated. And so he brought all the boys to the front. And he started with the strongest and the oldest and, and the most uh, talented first. And this is the way that the scene plays out. You can read this in Samuel. It's fascinating. That when the prophet goes and he sees the first one, he looks like a king. On the exterior, I mean, he, he seemed to have all the, the equipment that he needed. He was of high intellect. He had great character. He had lots of achievements in life. And it looked like he would be the king. And surely Jesse believed that if someone in my household is going to be king, it's going to be my firstborn. There was always a favoritism to the firstborn in the Old Testament. But when Samuel got all the way through the boys presented to him, he asked one of the most amazing and astounding questions that you could ask to a parent. He said, um, sorry, Jesse do you have any more kids? I mean, can you imagine the prophet of God coming to anoint a king and, and you're going to leave one of your kids out? Like, no, that doesn't happen. But actually, that's exactly what Jesse did. Jesse goes, well, you know, now that you mention it, I do have a boy named David. He's out tending the flock. Like, why didn't you think about him too? Why leave out poor little David? But Samuel says, bring him. I want to see him. And so as soon as the prophet sees David, here's the words that he says. Surely I have seen the Lord's anointed. And here's what the Bible tells us. God does not look on the outside like man, but God looks at the heart. And here's what James is telling us. If you only look at things on the outside, if you only look at circumstances the way they're playing out for your eyes to see, you got to be careful. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in what we see and hear and it takes us to extreme levels, but we're not listening with our spirit. And God said this to us, he that has an ear to hear, let them hear what the spirit says to the church. And so we have to get the eyes of God. We have to get a different uh, outlook. We have to get a, a different uh, perspective. And if we look at people only on the outward, then we are showing favoritism and we are offending the name of the God we say we serve. But we have to look also at the heart. And, and I think key to that is, is being a person who is highly valuing honor. This is a huge value for us around here at New Freedom Church is that we honor and we invest in the things that we see as valuable. And you also, if you look at your life, you honor things and you value things differently and therefore you invest. And that's why as a local body, I am so proud of the fact that our church takes time and resources to honor and to invest in things that are beyond us, that are really in, in so many ways, not every time, but in so many ways is an outreach to the least among us. Somebody say the least among us. Those that don't look like they have it all together. Those that don't have the best pedigree. Those that maybe came from the wrong side of the tracks. And maybe on the outside, they still are lacking some things that you and I already have. But on the inside, they're precious to God. It's things like celebrate recovery. We invest heavily in a ministry called Celebrate Recovery where people that have hurts and habits and hangups. And I want to tell you, there are only two kinds of people that... Uh, in this world, those that know that they have hurts, habits, and hangups and go get them taken care of by the blood of Jesus 
and those that are too proud to realize it, but they'll find out eventually that they have hurts and habits and hangups. And this is what Celebrate Recovery does. It's ministries like the Shine Mission who, who uh, graciously will grace somebody and give them a pair of shoes and socks when they don't have a good pair of shoes and socks. It's ministries like Joshua's Place who we have uh, partnered with to, to feed meals to people and to educate. It's more than just a handout, but it's a hand up. It's so that we can elevate people from the place of their transitioning into the new place where God is putting them. It's place, things like Interfaith Hospitality Network, which this church so graciously reaches out to to provide a place to live for three weeks out of the year as families who are, have been broken and, and bruised and, and just find themselves in a place of, of, of waywardness and up, things up in the air that we give them that transition that they need into the next level of their life. It's like the, the Lebanon Food Pantry whom this church uh, has been supporting for 14 years, giving resources and needed uh, guidance and value to people in our community that can go there and receive something to eat. It's like our, our kingdom kitchen. It's like our love packages. It's like Pastor Lewis in Nigeria who raises up young minds for Christ. These are the things that we honor. And many times we're touching the least among us, those who can never pay us back. Listen, you will never know the joy of giving until you can give to someone who can never return it in kind. That is true joy. But then in verse 10, James transitions here a little bit and he says, for whoever keeps the whole law, everybody say the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, say one point. That means if you break one, here's what he says, you're guilty of breaking it all. Verse 11, for he who says you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. So there is a law that brings bondage. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And there is a law that brings freedom. And here's what James is encouraging us. Make sure that you are in that category, that you speak and you operate as a person who is going to be part of the law that brings freedom. There's always law. There's always a law. Sometimes it's broken, but there's always a law, the law of freedom. Verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to everyone or anyone who has not been merciful. So let me ask you a question. Do you want mercy? Be merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I like the interplay that James uses here because he borrows something, a concept from the Old Testament that the, the original readers would have known very well, and he mixes it with something of the New Testament, which these early Christians were just learning. And I would say, regardless of how long you have served Jesus, you and I are still just learning this law of freedom. But let me illustrate it like this. God originally gave 10 commandments to Moses and therefore, by extension, gave them to the people. So if I were to do a quiz today and I were to ask you, how many laws did God give his people? You would say, you guys are fast, 10, that's right. Ten laws is what God gave to his people. But over two millennia, over, over 2,000 years, those ten original laws bloomed and mushroomed out to 614 commandments. Now, isn't that just like man? Let's get into this thing and complicate it just as much as we can. That's what they did. 
So by the time that Jesus came on the scene, those original 10 had bloomed into 614 rules, regulations. Many of them were very good. Many of them were, were for society to, to stay intact, but so many of them were just onerous. It was too hard. They were a heavy burden. No one could live up to them. And here's what James is saying, is that if you keep 99% of the law, but you just offend in one, then you've broken the whole law. And that's what the old law taught. That's what the old law still does. That's why the, the, the Old Testament, we have to rightly divide the word of truth. There's an Old and a New Testament. Anything that is not found reiterated in the New Testament from the Old was part that stayed in the Old Covenant. If it's reiterated in the New, then we still keep it. So that's why I tell you, if we scrap the 614 but save the 10, that's really what still applies to the Christ follower today. Let me illustrate. I haven't met a person yet that says, nah, just lie to me. I like to be lied to. No. We value honesty. We value these kind of things. The Ten Commandments are not onerous for us to have to to live by in such a way that that we uh, pat ourselves on the back. But this is the very basis of human society. If you go today in Washington, D.C., and you walk into the house chamber, you go into the center aisle door, you look back, there is embossed, a picture of the lawgiver right there in the House of Representatives. It's Moses with the Ten Commandments. It is the foundation for civil society. These Ten Commandments are things that we still live by today. And here's what what James is saying. But if you break just one of them, you've offended and you have broken all of them. So my question to you today is this. How good is good enough? If you're basing your works on the old law, then you're going to have a really tough uphill battle. Jesus encountered uh, someone like this. He was a rich, young ruler. We don't know his name. We just know that he was rich, that he was young, and he was a ruler. He came to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, I like this stuff you're doing. You're healing the sick. You're letting the blind be able to see. The lame is walking. How can I get in on this? I want to be part of what's happening now. And here's what Jesus said to him. Well, how good have you been? Well, he said, you know, I've kept all the laws since my, my, my childhood. I've done good to this, and I've, I've, I've not lied. I've not cheated, I've not stolen. And so he, was, he would probably get a 99%. Now, on test taking, if you got a 99%, you probably wouldn't ask to retake the test to get the other one. I mean, I, I'm good with 99. I'll take it, right? But Jesus looked at this man, and he said, good. You've passed in all of those things. You still lack one thing. He says, okay, Jesus. What is it? He's well achieved. He knows that he can probably do it. And Jesus said, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. It was the very thing that he didn't want to do. And here's what I have found about God in my own life. And maybe you have found this. God will strike the nerve of the very thing that you are putting in reserve. I'll do all this, God, but don't you speak to me over here and that. And that's where Jesus talked. That's where he went. And here's what Matthew 19 and 25 says about this. When his disciples heard it. (laughs) So they're listening to this conversation. They're watching this rich young ruler. The disciples are overhearing. These are the followers of Jesus. They get the inside scoop on the parables. When the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Who qualifies? If this guy kept 99% and it's still not good enough for Jesus, then who can qualify? But Jesus was bringing them a new commandment. Everybody say a new commandment. 
Jesus was bringing them something that superseded, went beyond, and fulfilled the old law, but went beyond the old law. Jesus didn't come to do away with the old, hear me. He came to fulfill the law. It is the law of freedom. In New Freedom Church, we taught and we teach and we speak and we preach about the law of freedom because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. It is the law of Jesus. This is a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you. And it's all wrapped up in loving God and loving our neighbor. Now, I love the the book of James because there's some great theology here in the book of James. It springboards us right into this question, how good is good enough? The Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the books of the New Testament, gets to the book of Romans, chapter 7. You can read this when you get home. This, This will bless you. This is good. He gets to the chapter 7, and he talks about this, I call it Paul's tug of war. And when you read chapter 7, you will find that you can identify in here because we all have these similar things happening on the inside of us. Paul said like this, I know on this hand what is right, and I know on that hand what is wrong. And every time I want to do right, there is a pulling, there is a tug, there is a pushing to do what is wrong. I want to do right, I end up so often doing wrong. Every now and then I do right, I pat myself on the back, and then tomorrow I fall, and I self-condemn myself, and I'm right back in the same situation I found myself in. And Paul's saying there's this tension, there's this tug of war. This thing is raging on the inside of me all the time, and I just don't know what to do about it. In Romans 7, 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, have you gotten to the place where you have felt the burden and the weight of law-keeping, where you have felt the weight of sin? Have you gotten to the place like Paul where you can say, oh, wretched man, oh, wretched woman that I am? Because if you have never looked into that glass, that looking glass of the Word of God, it is a mirror. If you've never looked into this to realize that all of your goodness, all of your righteousness, all of your rule-keeping can never, ever measure up to that law, then you'll never get to the next point, which is Paul saying, who, not what, it's not doing another class, it's not taking another course, it's not going to another counseling session, but who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, I thank God. Somebody want to thank God this morning? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not just Savior, he's the Messiah, but he is our Lord. When we give him the rights of our life, we say he is Lord. He is Savior at Calvary. He is Lord of our lives. I thank Jesus Christ, my Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Here's what he knew. You are not your body. Let me say it again. You are not your body. This body is passing away. It is, it is aging. It's changing. It's transforming. Every seven years, the cells in your body completely replicate. It's a miracle of God. But you are not your body. Paul said, there is this tension in me, and my body, my, my emotions, they want to do something over here that I shouldn't do. But in my mind, I serve the Lord with my mind because 
By the washing of the water of the word, I renew my mind. In Christ, I am a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. It starts in your mind, and, and that's what propels me to do what is right. So you are not your body. You and I are three-part beings. You are spirit, soul, and body. Paul talks about two of them right here. He talks about body, and he talks about the soul, which is the mind. So your spirit is the real you. It is the you that will live on forever somewhere. And he talks about serving God with his mind, which is uh, your soul life, your, mi- your mind, your will, and your emotion. And then he talks about his body serving the law of sin. Your spirit is to be the king of your being. Your soul is to be the servant, and your body is to be the slave. So your spirit, the Bible says that the spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness. It is your spirit man that gets a word from God that activates that through your mind, will, and emotions and tells your body what it's going to do. If you allow your body to tell you what it's going to do, then I guarantee you on Monday morning when that alarm clock goes off, your body's going to say, just roll over, hit the snooze, no school today. Don't have to go to work today. That's what your body will tell you. And Paul recognized, I can't just go based upon what my body wants. I have to be able to dictate to my body what it's going to do. I can't just go with the human emotions because my body will tell me in the evening after I've had dinner and my sweet snack that now I need a salty snack. And my spirit sometimes, true confession, is a little weak at 10 o'clock at night and I end up getting both. And then I regret it the next day. But your spirit is the king of your tripart being. And so Paul recognizes that we have the ability, we have the authority to speak things. And here's in in, uh, James verse 13, he says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. When it comes to how we determine things for our lives, I think that most of us would admit we want mercy, we don't want justice. Joe Schutz wants mercy, not justice. If my life were put on a scroll behind, you, uh, behind me on this screen, I would not want for people to be measuring me based upon all the things that I have done in my life. There have been some good, but there have been some things that I would rather mercy, not justice. And the same would be true for any of us, just like that rich young ruler. He thought he had achieved everything, but Jesus said, no, do this one thing. Well, if you can't do that... The Bible says he went away sorrowful, and we never see him returning ever again. Maybe he did, but we just don't know. And that's what we just sang about was amazing grace. Isn't that a sweet sound? Amazing grace. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And that's why when I showed you that screen just a minute ago of some of the things we do as an outreach or things we value and honor here at the church is that it's practical meeting of needs that gives people an open door to hear the gospel. People have a really hard time hearing about your Jesus when their belly hasn't had food for two days. So give them something to eat first and then speak the word of truth to them. Help them to see the light of the gospel. 
we have a, a rapid response chaplain here in our church that uh, is part of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And one of the things that they're tasked with doing is uh, they have, uh, Samaritan's Purse has a, a chaplains that get dispatched all around the world, particularly in America, but really all around the world when there's a flood or disaster or there's hurricane, there's a fire. And, and not only do these chaplains go with the desire to pray for people in their spiritual need, but also they go in with bobcats and with, with uh, food and, and with uh, cranes and with water. And they take care of people's physical needs so that when they pray for them, their spiritual heart is open. And that's exactly what James was talking to us about right here. It harkens back to the first part of this chapter in that the kingdom is being exposed and being displayed when we meet practical needs. We, look to your neighbor and say, you are the hands and feet of Jesus. How will they hear unless there is a preacher? How will they see Christ unless we become the hands and feet of Jesus to our world? A couple weeks ago in a staff meeting, uh, we were talking about this upcoming series and Pastor Nate said, oh, I would love to share about faith and works. It's just something that, that God has been speaking to me right now in my season of life. And so even though he's off this weekend, we did arrange for him to have an opportunity to share with you a little bit about this next portion on faith versus works. Watch this. I'll be right back. So why is it that when we pray sometimes, it doesn't seem like God answers? Uh, we feel like we're talking to the sky and nothing's really going on. Well, I'm going to challenge you this morning. James talks very specifically about faith without works is dead. And a lot of times faith and action come together. And a lot of times you hear people talk about faith being an action word. I want to challenge you this week to specifically pray something that maybe you've not been getting answers to or feel like you have not been getting answers to. And I want to challenge you to look in between the lines. Look in between the lines for the real answer that God's given you. Because here's an example. I've heard so many people as of late say, we just need to pray about it. We just need to pray about it. God will provide. God will provide. Well, what about a job, for instance? What if you needed a job and you're, you're just, God will provide. We'll just pray about it. Do we really, truly think that someone's going to knock on our door and offer us a job? No, we have to go out and apply. We have to do an action. When I pray for something, a lot of times, God has already answered that prayer. He's standing next to the door that he's opening but he's waiting for us to walk through it. So I want to challenge you, don't sit back on the couch, don't sit back on the sideline and wait for God to answer prayer. Pray and go do something, go do action. God is standing next to that answer, waiting for you to take that step forward. That is what James's heart is when he's writing this letter to us. Go act, go do something with that faith because without that action, faith is dead. So will you take that challenge? to activate your faith with your works. I want to commend our country that this week we took an act of faith by going out and in record numbers, our country voted. And the election has to be the thing that's on our collective mind. It's on the world's mind right now. Someone asked me not long ago, they said, Pastor, why is it that you don't talk about politics on, on social media. And I, I just vowed that I wasn't going to do that. That's just, just not a, a, an arena that I want to play at. It's not because I don't have strong opinions. I, I do. I have strong opinions. But one area that they always tell uh, leaders and public speakers is know your audience. 
it, what I observe about my audience there is that I have yet to see a social media post where someone comes out with all the facts and all the points and they line out their case and others who are of the opposite persuasions just fall like cordwood and say, you're so right. That's exactly what I needed to hear to change my opinion. It's just not the venue for it. And the other thing is knowing your audience is that I know this audience. According to the surveys, it says that evangelicals came out to support the Republican ticket by about 88%. That's what, that, that's what the audience, and, and this is the evangelical church, so I recognize that there's probably a large percentage here. That as I, I'm not a prophet, but I told you like three weeks ago, come November 3rd, there's going to be 50% of our country not going to be happy about the results. That's about where we're at as a country, 50%. And here's what I would say to you. The Lord put this on my heart. And, you know, the Bible says he strikes the shepherd and then he got to go talk to the sheep. Is that I was spending more time wrapped up in news and in media than I was in the word of God. And, and if you find yourself there right now, let me just speak a word of encouragement to you. Get back to the word. See what God says. We find ourselves 20 years outside of the first contested election uh, uh, in our lifetime in 2000. We find ourselves in another contested election not even sure how everything is going to play out. But let me say this. I don't identify as a Republican voter or a Democrat voter. I identify as a values voter. And we vote for a platform that we think will best serve the functions of our society and will propel us to a place where we can live as a civil society. And what I have found over the last couple of days talking to people who are of the opposite persuasion of how I voted for hours and hours I have had these conversations is they see the world differently than me. They see it totally differently. Every point, there's a counterpoint where they see it differently. And it occurred to me that there is only one person who has wrongfully suffered and bled and died for me to secure my freedom, and it was Jesus Christ. Yes, he secured my freedom and yours too. But you have operated with action by your faith. You have gone out to vote. You're not done yet. There are still local matters that matter. There are still local elections that you and I can influence. There are still things that we need to press into. But know this, that the church of Jesus Christ for the first 300 years after its founding never had a persuaded party in their government that was for the Christians. And the church of Jesus has always grown the greatest when the persecution was the hottest. And so come what may, I, I have my preference, I have my opinion, I have things I, I would like to work out my way, but if not, just like the three Hebrew children, our God is Abel, but if he doesn't, he's still God. Amen. Someone said to me, they said, well, but don't you believe like you, you've preached that the powers to be are ordained of God? Don't you believe that? Yes, I certainly believe that, but there's a caveat there. Because if you look back at ancient Israel and his dealings with his people, there are times when because of our begging, because of our pleading, because of the majority opinion of how that they want something to happen, God sits back and says, you don't want that to happen. And they says, yes, we do. No, you don't. Yes, we do. And finally, God says, fine, have it your way. You can have what you want. Israel wanted a king. God wanted to be their king. And they said, we're looking at all these surrounding nations. They are so advanced. They are so with the times. Look at us hanging out back here doing Old Testament ritual and worship. We want a king. God said, you don't want a king. A king's going to tax you. A king's going to put your kids in military service. A king is going to put you under oppression. They said, but we want to be like the other nations. 
And finally, God said, okay, you can have Saul. You can have your king. You can have the one that you want. So yes, I believe that the powers to be are ordained by God, but sometimes we get something in our lives because of our persistence that God initially didn't want. Now, you're concluding what I mean by that right now. You keep on concluding. Because whatever side you're on, you have to recognize red and yellow, black and white, we are all precious in his sight. And though I might disagree with somebody, here's what I know. I cannot antagonize and influence at the same time. Therefore, I'm not going to go out gloating and I'm not going to go in weeping. I'm going to keep it pretty even keel because that worm can turn really quick. Whether you're gloating or you're weeping, it can turn really quick. Just look at history a little bit, okay? Look at the word of God. Let God be God. We're not going to serve Baal. We're not going to serve Mammon. We're going to serve God. Come what may, we're going to serve King Jesus. Amen? Faith without works is dead. Now, in this closing part of James chapter 2, he, he compares and contrasts two things that are actually polar opposites. And this is the beauty, I think, of reading Scripture in a line-upon-line manner because he's going to give us an example of two different lifestyles and two different people of the Old Testament. Verse 21 says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Everybody say, what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. He was called the friend of God. I pray that at the end of my days, that I'm not just known as a loving husband and a loving father and a pastor of a church, and someone who led in our community. I pray that at the end of my life, it can be said of me that he was a friend of God. That's what was known by Abraham. You see, that person is considered righteous by what they do and not faith alone. So let me ask you, what did Abraham do? We might think and conclude that, well, he was up there on Mount Moriah. He had the altar ready and he lifted up his knife to sacrifice Isaac. That's what Abraham did. No, no, no. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says what he did before he did what he did was he believed God. What Abraham did is what you and I can do. We can believe God. Whose report shall you believe? We believe the report of the Lord. You and I can do that. He believed God and it was imputed, it was accounted, it was given to his credit for righteousness. You can do that. Verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We look at Father Abraham. Now, how, how dare James compare one of the greatest patriarchs against a common prostitute? Here's why. Because he is living under the law of freedom, not under the law of justice. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And so he presents Rahab, the prostitute, right here in his letter to say, look at Rahab. 
She's broken, she's busted, she's disgusted, she's messed up, she's got bruises, she didn't live right, she's unrighteous, and yet she's paralleled right with Abraham. Why? Because she too believed God. That's because this door swings wide open. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And maybe you have that question today. How can I get in on that? How can I be part of that? We say around here, it's as easy as ABC. A, you have to admit that you cannot fix your problems on your own. You've tried and you failed. You can't fix your problems on your own. B, you have to believe that what Jesus said he came to do, he did. And that his death on the cross was your death on the cross. And when he rose on the third day, you now can have newness of life. You believe the claims of Jesus. C, you commit. You commit your life to him. Say, preacher, how do I do that? It's very simple. We're going to pray. And there's no magical prayer. This is just my words. But I want to encourage as many as who will to pray this out loud. You may just encourage someone next to you to pray it for the very first time. Pray this prayer to God if you want to take that step across the line of faith. If you want to walk into that wide open door and be considered a friend of God. Here's the prayer. Dear God, I come to you today just the way I am. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Today, God, I repent. I ask for you to forgive me. Come into my life. Make me new. And I'll serve you as you show me how. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, we believe you're born again. And we would love to know that you prayed that so that we can get you connected with some next steps. You need to be baptized. You need to identify publicly with the family of God and we can give you information of how to do that. You need also to get connected to a growth group, that eight to 15 people who can bear your burdens and you share theirs. That's vitally important. And we would love to pray with you. Let's just give a hand to everyone who prayed that prayer this morning, can we? There's rejoicing in heaven over just one who comes to know the Lord. Thanks for joining us this week. I am so excited about what we have planned for next week. But before then, would you take a minute and go to the video description and either leave us a review or click on one of those links for all the information available. And one last thing, your generosity really does make a difference. Would you prayerfully consider partnering with us financially, which enables us to reach even more people with the gospel. God bless.